over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. As you know, on our big book cover to cover series, I'm trying to teach through each book of the Bible one Sunday at a time. And so as part of this task, we are getting subject matter experts, uh, men and women who are smarter than me, who have a greater expertise in certain areas. And so we're delighted to have Dr. Eric Tully on the broadcast today. Dr. Tully is an associate professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He's passionate about preaching the Old Testament and helping those in the church interpret and proclaim it with competence and confidence. His research interest includes textual criticism. Man, I struggled through those subjects, brother. Uh, And (laughs) translation studies, Hebrew linguistics, and prophetic literature. Dr. Tully's publications include the translation and translator of the Peshitta of Hosea, a Brill publication. Hosea, a handbook on the Hebrew text of Baylor University Press publication. And he also co-authored the Old Testament textual criticism, A Practical Introduction. Now, that's an oxymoron, bro. I'm just telling you. Uh, Baker (laughs) Publishing Group in 2016. He's currently writing other books on the Old Testament prophets in addition to working on a number of forthcoming publishing efforts. Eric and his wife, Tracy, have two daughters, and they live in the uh, Chicagoland, Wisconsin area. And uh, Dr. Telly, thanks for giving us some time on In Context. No, thanks so much for having me. So let's, first of all, let's dive in a little bit to your training. And I say that somewhat pejoratively. Some of us are wired in this world, and I'm glad guys like you and Dr. Alan Ross and others were wired in textual criticism in the Semitic languages. What, first of all, what attracted you to go down that path? Uh, I would say one of the things that really fascinates me about textual criticism is the, the intersection that it provides between languages and ancient versions, between a really close reading of the biblical text, sort of a history of exegesis. So I think that's one of the things that really drew me to it is, is just the way that it, it forces you to deal with a number of different methodologies all at the same time. When I was in my doctoral program, I really, I loved Hebrew, obviously, because that's what I was studying full time. But I also loved taking classical Greek and working in the Septuagint. I loved Syriac and Aramaic. And I think textual criticism provided me an opportunity to kind of use, continue to use all of those and to get stronger in them and to really pay attention to what ancient translators were doing with the Bible. And yeah, so it's just a really fascinating, fascinating study. And I've enjoyed keeping up with that. And obviously you're wired that way. <laughs> Right? I mean, you've got some uh, acumen yeah. toward language. is something that you enjoy. I mean, the reason I ask that is because some of our listeners, you know, will say, well, you know, what does all that mean? And we're just wired differently. Certain people have different strengths and interests, and obviously God's wired you to go deep on languages, linguistics, on syntax, on textual yeah. criticism, which is a huge field. Uh, most folks don't even know what that's about, but it's an enormous field when you're talking about any of these ancient languages. 
Yeah, I wouldn't say that languages just uh, you know automatically or magically come into my brain. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of memorization and uh, effort. But I do love grammar, and I, I love uh, thinking about languages and thinking about you know with precision what what a text is is saying. So yeah, I enjoy that a lot. So before we dig into Jose, give us the uh, primer when you're talking to a church audience, uh, you're out speaking somewhere, maybe you're talking to high school educated kids, college kids, maybe uh, young adults, and talking to these different groups. How do you communicate to them what's pretty academic and esoteric, and why should it matter to them? Because one of my fears, what textual criticism is, we're taking the Bible out of people's hands more and more. Even when I mention, you know, a Hebrew phrase, an idiom, you know, something in syntax. I'll, I'll talk a lot about parallelisms and chiasms and different devices and repetitions. And I'm fearful that I'm taking the Bible out of their hands. Oh, I can't read that. I don't see that. I never went to seminary response that a person might have. Yeah, well, I think there's two issues. One is sort of at the academic level, it is important to work in the original languages because there's just so much there to see. There's, there's so many structural and uh, semantic, you know, um, issues there with the, with the precise meanings of words and the way that word order matters and poetry and a narrative and the way that the authors uh, manipulate the Hebrew language in order to communicate very subtle, subtle ideas. And so I think, I think at the academic level, it's important to do that. And, and that's why we rely on, you know, we rely on people that study that and spend a lot of time focusing on those issues. And But I think at the preaching level, I often tell my students at Trinity that what you want to do is convey the outcome of that study, but not necessarily speak in a way that is discouraging to people or makes them feel like they don't have access to that. Because the truth is that we have very, very good English translations and the translators of the the CSB and the ESV and, and the NIV have gone to great lengths to create consistent, accurate translations that, to the extent that they're able, bring out some of those nuances. And so people that uh, in our churches that read only the English translations are well served by those, and uh, they have accurate, good, good translations. They don't need to be discouraged. And I think I agree with you. I think it's valuable to compare the different translations to see what each one has done because they all bring out different nuances in the text. So I think uh, it's important to recognize the value of the original languages, but not to be discouraged uh, when we don't have access to that. Well, uh, Dr. Kelly, let's jump into one of the areas of your expertise, and that's the minor prophet Hosea. And let me ask a series of questions, and then we can mm-hmm. go directions you want to. Give me the overview, context, who he's writing, the time and place, kind of the big picture of what Hosea was writing at the time, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, well, Hosea was uh, was a prophet working in the 8th century B.C. in the northern kingdom of Israel. He uh, That means he probably worked between, you know, about 755 BC to 725 BC, right at the end of the Northern Kingdom, and when everything was sort of falling apart. Everything was falling apart politically. Kings were being assassinated sometimes uh, after very, very short times. Uh, there were constant coups in the palace. The The nation was falling apart religiously and spiritually. They were 
completely all in on worshiping the Canaanite fertility deities that had come down from uh, the surrounding nations. And so Hosea stands as a covenant prosecutor during this time, announcing the failure of Israel to abide by the, the special covenant that the Lord had made with Israel. It's important that he's working in the Northern Kingdom because he is constantly tying that failure into the the particular situation of the Northern Kingdom. And although he does reference the Southern Kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem um, throughout the book, but um, he's particularly concerned with uh, with the fertility religion. He's concerned with the kings and the and the ruling authorities constant desire to create political alliances and depend on their military. And all of these are forms of idolatry. All of these are ways that the Northern Kingdom had access to the Lord. He had invited them to turn to him when they were in times of trouble, but instead they just looked for every every other means at their disposal to try and just fix their own problems. And as a result, that was a breaking of the covenant and it was a failure. And so Hosea announces the accusation throughout the book of what they've done wrong in very specific ways. He announces that in the near term, in the near future, they're going to be judged for this by God. He's going to destroy the nation and and take away the things that they wanted so badly that they were turning to other countries and other gods to try to get. And then in a bit of a surprise, but not really, because we've read uh, the rest of the Bible, he announces that ultimately God is going to restore them in the end, or at least some of them. And he's going to call them back to himself, and he's going to love them and call them to himself in spite of their determination to sin, and they'll repent, and then he'll live with them as his people forever on a newly created land. You... um mentioned the immorality and, of course, the Baal and Canaanite and the fertility mm-hmm. things and all the overtures of this. In your study in Hosea with the Jezreel, lo Ruhamah, lo Ami, and how that's played out in chapter 2 back and forth, do you think he's doing something there with the immorality aspect of this as your wife is playing? Is it sort of the, is that like a subtext and that's the reason God sets up this story the way he does to begin? Yeah, well, the prophets in the Old Testament frequently use what are called synacts. They, these are word pictures, or they're they're sometimes uh, they sometimes act things out um, in various ways. Jeremiah does this a lot. He puts on a linen belt and he says that this belt is a representation of Israel's glory, and then he hides it in a in a wet rock for a time by the river, and then he pulls it out and it's all rotten. And he puts the belt on and he says, this is you, your glory is faded. Or Ezekiel acts out what it looks like to go into exile. He dresses up in traveling clothes and he leaves the city while everyone's watching. And, and it, so, so this, it's a re- really important rhetorical technique that the prophets use in these sign acts by, by really vividly illustrating what they're saying. And part of the reason they do that is because their messages are not popular. People don't want to hear what they have to say. And so it's a way of, of sort of sneaking past the, the defenses of their listeners and confronting them with the truth of this in, in really, really imaginative ways. Well, I think that's what's happening with Hosea marrying this promiscuous woman. I, I think that it's functioning as a sign act. God commands him to do it as an illustration 
of Israel's unfaithfulness and sort of spiritual promiscuity. It's a it's not just a typical sign act where you use an illustration in a in a sermon or something. This is life altering for him because it, it involves marriage and children and the names of his children, so it's really invasive. Uh, it's probably one of the mo- most invasive of the Sinaics that we have in the prophets. But um, my understanding of, of the first three chapters of the book is that that Sinaic is in play in chapter one, when God tells him to marry Gomer and, uh, and, and she's an adulteress and they have three children and he names the children. And then the Sinaic comes back in chapter three. And there you see uh, Gomer and Israel in parallel. You have Gomer, the unfaithful wife, and you have Israel, the unfaithful nation. And Hosea says to Gomer, for a time, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be your husband. I'm going to love you and bring you back into my home, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to engage any, any uh, marital activity with you. And God is going to uh, have a time away from Israel, which I think re- refers to the exile. And then, uh, but then both Hosea and Yahweh speak to their respective wives and announce that in the end, the relationship will finally be restored. So I think that sign act forms sort of an enveloping structure around chapters one through three. It's in chapter one and it's in chapter three, but chapter two is not really about Hosea and Gomer. My understanding of chapter two is that it's about uh, the Lord and Israel. And he's using that family imagery, that adultery imagery, child mother imagery, and he's, he's using all of that in order to speak directly about the Lord's relationship with Israel, about how she adulterated herself with these fertility deities because she wants what they have to offer. She wants the wine and the grain, and she wants the crops, and she wants the wealth, and she wants the fertility of having lots of children. And uh, Yahweh, the Lord is going to take all those away as punishment, but then in the end, he announces that he's going he's to ultimately restore her to himself. So in that way, the first three chapters of the book function as almost like a table of contents for chapters 4 through 14, where that same pattern of accusation and judgment and reconciliation and the same concepts of adultery and ultimate restoration and the idea of the desire for the good life, the desire for fertility and the desire for wealth as something that draws you away from the Lord. All of those things are introduced in chapters one through three by using the sign act of Hosea's wife. And then the prophet goes into further detail about that in chapters four through 14. You mentioned the ultimate restoration. And one of the things I've been stressing going through these prophets is that much of the content in the context when Hosea is living, the people who are hearing that are not going to experience it. Right. It's going to be, you know, we use the word eschaton. It's going to be in the future, perhaps. Maybe there's some, but in their lifetime, we think of, you know, from Exodus, the wilderness wandering, how many of those people died in the wilderness. They did not receive the promises they were given. Obviously, they're looking forward to this ultimate salvation Yahweh is going to bring. But I often wonder how the pious, God-fearing Jew who was, uh, we might say, a Christian trying to live a faithful life, hears these messages and knowing in my lifetime, I'm never going to see this. And it's going to be judgment and hard. I mean, some of these books are are very difficult in the Mm -hmm. sense that you're going to all die (laughs) and you're not going to see these things come to fruition, but God's still faithful. 
and ultimately he will establish his kingdom and he will reign. So what's your take on you? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're in the same situation because we also look forward to God's ultimate restoration. So in the historical context for the original prophet and, and the people of the northern kingdom that he was speaking to, he's looking back on their sin and announcing that they have already broken the covenant. And he's looking forward to judgment that's coming to in the near future that they're going to experience. But then he looks uh, into the distant future. You're right, into the eschatological future, this time when God's going to break into human history and set all things right, and, and, and that's going to be the end of time. And so he, he, looks, he looks way down the road, at least from his perspective, to, to that time. Now, for us, as we read the book of Hosea, we're looking back on the judgment. So we can see that God already brought that uh, to fulfillment, that he's already brought the judgment on the northern kingdom. And we can see that he kept his promises and fulfilled that. But we, with Hosea and, uh, and his listeners, we also look forward to a time in the future when God sets all things right. Now, I think the interesting twist there is that for Hosea, everything was in the future, when it came to God's restoration. And we live in a time where the the eschatological future has already begun because Christ has already come. He's already died on the cross and risen again and initiated that end time. And so we see that um, God has already begun the process of renewing all things and, and reconciling all things to himself. But we look forward to the final the final restoration in the future. Your glockenspiel is working there, I can hear <laughs> it's my cuckoo clock. Yeah. All right. Let me ask you a question about idolatry. And this is something that I touch on when I teach, but I would, I would love your explanation because when we think of idolatry, we sort of oversimplify it. You know, someone's burning a lamb in front of a golden image or, you know, whatever. And we get this mm-hmm. misconstrued picture. But as I understand it, idolatry is when they love something besides Yahweh Elohim, when they're doing something besides being faithful to him. Obviously, you've dug deeper in this book than me. So give us some insights on the idolatry that's mentioned and judged really throughout all the prophets, but in particular, Hosea. Well, one of the uh, unique contributions, I think, of, of Hosea is the way that he links together the fertility deities, which are, you know, Baal and Asherah and and different kinds of um, rituals that would, you know, hopefully cause the crops to grow and for them to have lots of children. He links those with, as I mentioned before, the attempts at political alliances. And so structurally within the book, he, he talks about those in the same way. And so one of the things that I've realized as I've been working through Hosea, I think a lot of times when we talk about idolatry, we talk about the thing that we want. You know, we talk about money as an idol, or we talk about friendship as an idol or maybe that perfect job or something. That's the thing that we want. And I think I think one of the things that Hosea communicates that, that has been a bit of a surprise for me is that the idolatry is not necessarily the thing that you want. It's the means by which you think that you can get it. The idolatry is what you're putting your trust in to get the things that you want. And so although the Lord had promised Israel all of these things in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 and the blessings and curses of the covenant. He had promised Israel, look, if you are faithful to me, I will give you crops. I will give you wealth. I will give you security. You'll have lots of children. 
you'll be honored, uh, it'll rain when it's supposed to, it just goes on and on and on about the, the good things that he'll give them if they're faithful to him in the covenant. But instead, Israel said, well, we want, we want to ensure, we want to maintain some sort of power in some sort of control over our own lives. So we want to ensure in some way, not just in faithfulness to the Lord, but through whatever means necessary, that it rains when it's supposed to, that our crops grow, that the land is fertile, that we get well, that we have security from our enemies. And so they start turning to some of these other things. That, I think, is the nature of idolatry. And I think the twist for me is realizing that in the book, God is not saying to them, I don't want you to be secure. I don't want you to have crops. I don't want you to be fed and provide for and flourish. And I don't want you to, uh, to experience the different types of fertility. What I want is for you to trust in me for those things, as opposed to looking elsewhere. So I, I think that's a helpful clarification for me anyway on the nature of idolatry. When you think of, uh, I like to think of money, sex, and power being these big umbrellas that cover mm-hmm. most of our sin, uh, mm-hmm. and lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. And I find it striking that one of the phrases I use is that all sin is an illegitimate attempt to have a legitimate need met. And mm, that's a little simple. It's a little simplistic, but I think it works because immorality, there's a place for sexual intimacy in the marriage bed that God has designed. Anything else is going to be insatiable. There's a place for the proper stewardship of money that is uh, very content-oriented, and and God may bless and prosper you even beyond what you thought, but if you're going after that as your objective, you're going to be frustrated, and you're going to lose sleep when the stock market goes down, et cetera. And so to me, that's why I I was curious about your take on it, because I think we think we're beyond idolatry, but I, for the Christian today, my concern is that we, we all have these props we build. If I get enough money, if I get my kids you know, to love Jesus and go to good schools and marry a, a Christian you know, husband or wife, etc. And we kind of have these props. <laughs> if I get them all lined up, ah, I can be happy. We're, yeah, you know, we're, right. we're really not trusting Christ in the process to say, I, I really need your help to make this work because otherwise it's just futility. It's just working in the flesh, right? That's right. And uh, I think it's easy to, to look at ancient idolatry at altars and incense shovels and exactly and, uh, and sacrificing. And dismiss it. Yeah, and dismiss you know, it. Yeah, and dismiss it and say, that's not a problem for me. It's exactly the same human temptation. It's just it, we've, we're just putting our confidence in different things. We're putting our confidence in science. We're putting our confidence in technology. We're putting our confidence in economic systems, in political parties. It's exactly the same temptation. And God calls us to be totally faithful to him, to trust in him completely. And whenever that conflicts uh, with the world, to put that aside. Let me take you to a couple of verses, and if you can give us some commentary on it. In chapter 4, verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of God, I also will forget your children. Mm -hmm. Unpack that for us a little. Well, knowledge is a very important issue in the book. One of the reasons that Israel has failed so spectacularly in the covenant is that they have the wrong perspective about who God is, about what he can do, about what he demands of them. 
And so this issue of knowledge is a theme that is threaded throughout the book. And here he says that because of their lack of knowledge, because of their poor perspective and the fact that they're looking to other things for what they want, they have broken the covenant. And uh, the irony is they have, they have tried so hard to gain these things for themselves, to gain security and wealth for themselves. And then that has not led to flourishing. Instead, it has led to destruction. And they've gotten exactly the opposite of what they were really hoping for. I think when he says, I reject you from being a priest to me, I take that to me. And I know there, there's a, a variety of views on that. I take him here to be actually speaking to a particular priest in the Northern Kingdom. And so when he says, because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. I think he's talking here about the priesthood and uh, using children as a, as a figure of speech. We're talking about the priesthood. The priests were supposed to be pointing the people toward God. They were supposed to be teaching the law. They were supposed to be encouraging faithfulness and mediating that relationship between the Lord and his people. And instead, they had forgotten the law of God. They had, he says in verse 8, fed on the sin of God's people and had been greedy. They had acted just like the people in verse 9. And so as a result, God is going to punish them. And uh, I think a little bit later, he actually talks about the, um, the prophet as well. So it's the priesthood and the prophets in the northern kingdom who had failed in their leadership roles to lead the people to God and to encourage faithfulness. Excellent. Let me uh, toss another one at you, um, and it's right after that. And the reason I ask is because people know this phrase, not, maybe not the context. He says it will be like people, like priest. Mm-hmm. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, like people, like priest, is, uh, that's just an expression that's in Hebrew. It's an expression in English that simply means that they'll be treated the same way, that they'll have the same result. And so the priesthood should not think that the people are sort of going down, going down in punishment and uh, going to be responsible for what they've done. But the priesthood, because they're some special class, are going to get away with it. He's saying they're, they're all in the same boat because they've all participated in this idolatry, and they're all going to experience the consequences for that. Chapter 6, we read, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Unpack that for us a little. <laughs> well, the book of Hosea is a difficult book, and um, and there's that's a, why there's, I'm asking you. You're the expert. Come on, Doc. <laughs> there's, a, there's a number of uh, different views on this as well among scholars. Um, some people think that this is sort of an initial act of repentance from the people, and they're beginning maybe to see the error of their ways, and so they're determining here to return to the Lord. I think that this is the prophet encouraging the people to repent. He's giving them some instructions here. He's saying to the people, look, I'm, I'm in the same situation that you are. I'm also a member of the northern kingdom. The Lord has torn us. He has struck us down. But let us return to him. Let's experience the grace and the mercy that he offers, and we can uh, expect from that that he will restore us. But it's something that, uh, although the prophet is recommending it, it's something that the people ultimately reject, because this takes place in a part of the book that, you know, really all the way down through, uh, I would say, chapter 8, 
this is all part of that accusation where the prophet is listing all of the ways that they have failed. So I view this section to be an offer of repentance that isn't taken, and so the people further indict themselves by not taking the opportunity for God's mercy when it's offered to them. So that's, you know, there's different views on it, but sure, that's the way sure. they take it. Do you do anything with the two days, and after three days he will raise us up? Um, you, you mean in terms of uh, maybe some sort Allusion of— Allusion to resurrection? Yeah, I, I, I've looked into that quite a bit, mm-hmm. and I, the way that that's stated in the Hebrew, it, it just, to me, it isn't, it isn't clear that that's an illusion. Okay. That's and, why I'm asking. Okay, yeah. and of course we have uh, parallels in other books of the Bible, but I love this also, chapter 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather mm-hmm. than burnt offerings. And you already expounded on that a bit about the lack of knowledge. Right. Another example of, uh, of the prophet talking about knowledge there. This is, a, this is a constant issue that comes up in the Old Testament prophets, that not only are the people straying from the Lord in actively pursuing other gods and actively introducing heresy and heterodox practices into their worship of the Lord, but they are worshiping the Lord in a way that is manipulative. Isaiah talks about this, the trampling of his courts, and and he says, what is the multitude of all of this sacrifice to me? Uh, so the prophets are concerned that the people are not, they're, they're not only sort of playing the field and interested in seeing what other gods might help them out, but they're very fastidious about the worship of the Lord. They offer many sacrifices, they keep the pilgrimages, they offer all the offerings that they're supposed to do, but the prophets say to them, look, your, your lives are not indicating that you're really faithful to the Lord. You're murdering, you're committing sexual sin, you're unfaithful in all of these different ways. And so this exuberant worship of the Lord is nothing more than just manipulation. And he's not gonna take that seriously. What he wants is obedience and faithfulness and steadfast love. So in, I think that's what Hosea is, is alluding to here in verse six. It's like, what he wants is obedience and sacrifice. But if they're not gonna be obedient and they're not gonna be faithful, then the sacrifice and the specifics of the ritual worship are worth nothing. God is not gonna be manipulated like that. One that just catches me for some reason, and I, I hope you can help me out, as to why <laughs> it's chapter seven, verse seven, the second strophe, all their Kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, even when I read it now, it just hits me in the gut. It's like, you know, the most sad epitaph you could read on a monarch. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It was a complete failure of the leadership. The Kings of Israel were supposed to lead the way in uh, faithfulness to the covenant. This is a pattern that, uh, God had set up through David, and uh, instead, the royal line in the northern kingdom is not only fundamentally illegitimate because the northern kingdom separated from the south and separated from Jerusalem, but then every individual king is unfaithful as well. Chapter 8, verse 13, As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it. But the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. Yeah, I think uh, Hosea uses Egypt frequently as a figure of speech of captivity. So it is true that after Jerusalem fell 
in 586 that you know many of the exiles went to Babylon and some of the exiles with Jeremiah went to Egypt. So it is possible here that Hosea is talking about Egypt as a location of exile. And but I the way that he uses the, the word Egypt in the book, I think he is often using it as a as an illustration of captivity. This is something that every Israelite knew well, that they had come out of slavery in Egypt, that they had been nothing, they had nothing, they had no nation, they had no country, and they had no land, and God brought them out of out of slavery in Egypt and created a people for himself in the wilderness and gave them this land. And I think Hosea is saying here, uh, because of your unfaithfulness, because your hearts are not in the sacrificial offerings, he's going to undo everything that he's done. You're going to lose your land. You're going to lose your status as a people. You're going to lose your relationship with the Lord, at least temporarily. And it's as though you're going right back into captivity, which is where you came from. You think the Israelites post Exodus and, uh, and of course we got, you know, so many things happened by the time we're reading Hosea with the divided kingdoms and so forth. And, intertribal war, civil war, etc. Do you think they understood Egypt as it was handed down? And, I, and the reason I ask this question, I think of our own uh, poor understanding of history, whether we're going to talk about Pearl Harbor or mm. D-Day, or even now, younger people coming up, they don't know what 9-11 was about. Mm-hmm. And so you think of these traumas that happened to a nation, uh, the, the captivity and the slavery. Do you think these current-day Hosea, hearers would understand that? I think Egypt as a concept of captivity, it's difficult for me to um, to believe that they didn't have that concept. But I think you're right that a short memory is constantly spoken about in the Old Testament as the path to apostasy. And like we see that in the book of Judges, where because the new generation arose and did not know what God had done, then they just sort of fell off a spiritual cliff. And the prophets are dealing with that as well. This is, again, going back to the theme of knowledge in the book of Hosea, the fact that they they don't know. They don't know who, who the Lord really is. They don't know what they're supposed to know about the covenant relationship and the demands that he places on them. And so as a result, it's very easy for them to fall into falsehood and into various kinds of sin. So I put the epitaph on the book that judgment is sure destruction is sure, but there will be an ultimate future. Can you expand mm-hmm. on that or, or help me go further with that? No, I think that's good. I think that's definitely the repeating pattern that we see over and over in the book. Uh, the book makes, as I said, an important theological contribution about the nature of idolatry and uh, the kinds of things that we still struggle with. Nothing can come between our us and our relationship with the Lord. We can't put our trust, we must not put our trust in anything else to try to achieve uh, sort of the good life. But on the other hand, that's what God wants for us. So, I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to fall into the trap of being sort of a, you know, the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel. But the fact is that that was God's ultimate plan for humanity in the garden to live in relationship with him in a, in a, in a beautiful, flourishing garden where they had no wants and they had total security. And in the end, that's what God uh, has in store for his people as well in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Hosea is not rejecting the connection between our worship of the Lord and sort of physical flourishing now. That's what God wants for us. The question is, how are we going to achieve that? And only God 
only God can provide that. First, by, uh, by removing the problem of our sin through Christ, and then by making all things new in the restoration that Hosea is looking forward to. I think that's why it's really, it's really interesting the way that the book ends. At the very end of the book, in 14.9, it says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. It's a curious way for the book to end. Mm -hmm. And some scholars, some uh, critical scholars have even suggested that it was sort of tacked on later or that it comes from a different wisdom tradition because it does have a lot of wisdom words in it that are normally associated, you know, more, more like with the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. But in my view, this is a perfect conclusion to the book because after reading the book about Israel searching everywhere for the good life, searching from other gods and searching from military power and political alliances and coups in the palace where they're killing the king to try and set up another king. In the end, the only way to truly have a successful life and to uh, walk uprightly and, and to have the future that God intends for us is to wisely know who God is and what he expects and to submit ourselves to him. And so it's a beautiful postscript sort of conclusion to the book, and in some ways, a summary of the book's entire argument. Dr. Eric Tully, professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Obviously, in the show notes, we'll have more information about Eric's uh, publications and his work. Thanks for taking some time to be on the broadcast with us. Thanks so much. I uh, enjoyed talking with you about this, and it's been great to be here. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. Thank you.